Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest writer, Sally Tisdale, is the author of eight books, including Talk Dirty to Me, An Intimate Philosophy of Sex, Women of the Way, Discovering 2,500 Years of Buddhist Wisdom, and the James Beard Award finalist, The Best Thing I Ever Tasted, The Secret of Food. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, Esquire, Conjunctions, The Three Penny Review, and Creative Nonfiction, among others. And her accolades include being a Dorothy Ann Arthur Schoenfeld Distinguished Writer of the Year, 
as well as a recipient of the American Journal of Nursing Book of the Year Award, a Pope Foundation Award, and an NEA Fellowship. Her work has been reprinted in many anthologies, including Best American Spiritual Writing, Best Buddhist Writing, and Best American Science Writing. She was a judge for the National Book Award in 2010 and lives here in Portland, Oregon, where she is a senior lay teacher at the Dharma Reign Zen Center. She's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest book, a collection of essays out from Hawthorne Books entitled Violation. The New Yorker and its recent reconsideration of her underappreciated body of work calls her writings on illness and caretaking the literary antecedent to Sarah Manguso's Two Kinds of Decay, Eula Biss's On Immunity, and Leslie Jamison's The Empathy Exams. Furthermore, The New Yorker calls her latest book, Violation, a groundbreaking, career-defining one. Katie Waldman at Slate says, Sally Tisdale's essays shouldn't exist given that they perfectly capture the impossibility of writing. And Charles D'Ambrosio says that Sally Tisdale's a treasure comes as no secret to lovers of the essay, and yet this happy gathering that spans the decades is revelatory, a fascinating look at the epic wanderings of a life mapped by curiosity. We travel far and we travel wide, but in the end we circle home to Tisdale herself, vulnerable and available, intimate and encouraging, our guide and our friend, her questioning presence lighting the way and celebrating it all, every little step in life's saga, one lovely sentence at a time. Welcome to Between the Covers, Sally Tisdale. Thank you for having me. So one of the things that makes Violation, I think, a a really interesting read is we get essays that span 30 years of your life, um, ordered chronologically. And so there's something fascinating with the with the span of time that we get to witness you and your writing career. But what makes it particularly interesting to me is that you've arranged these essays from a 30-year span, but you've ended them all with postscripts. So we get the overlay of you and your voice now looking back at your writing that has occurred over this this span of time. And I was I was wanting to open the interview just with an inquiry about what that process was like of both reviewing your your life's work and then commenting on it one at a time as you put the book together. Well, first of all, the idea of a life's work is uh, I'm not done yet. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I have enough work for another another volume. Um, But uh, so I I hate to say that this is uh, somehow the 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 capstone. Sure, I wasn't suggesting that. (laughs) I'm actually working quite a a lot right now. Uh, The the postscripts were that very rare opportunity that any artist gets to actually say, now, wait a minute, I I want to say something more about this, or that's not exactly what I intended. And writing like like every form is a collaborative venture eventually you start out completely on your own but there's a point where you end up collaborating with everything from advertisers to copy editors and so there were places throughout where I suddenly realized I have a chance to have one more thing to say um, often about a title or a little tiny change that has always stuck for me but also the perspective of time uh, to me, it, it, I couldn't think of another way to order it than chronologically, and I do see 
you begin to see over time as you as you work in the same medium that there are themes and agendas that you can't escape that there is just a certain a certain way that artists see the world and no matter how many different ways they approach it there is a certain a certain preoccupation and for me that preoccupation has always been ambiguity and ambivalence and the inability to come to a real black and white conclusion about many things. I, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with what we might call emotional or cognitive dissonance. And eventually one, one moves through dissonance, but to be able to be comfortable with dissonance, I think, is, is crucial to the artist. It's also crucial to a democracy. And we're really seeing right now that, that the inability to tolerate dissonance and debate is is causing problems. So in my own work, I really see that I've always embraced that. And I don't know where that came from. I think it's always just been part of my personality. Hmm. So it served me as an essayist in particular, because the essay is really about trying things out. That's where the word, the word comes from a root that means to try out or to experiment. Essays are about doubt and hesitation and wonder and uncertainty as much as they are about telling a story. It's about creating a, a kind of open space in which questions arise. And we may answer some of those questions, but we never answer all of them. Hmm. Well, you just answered my next question already. <laughs> um, I, I mean, you had said in the introduction that you'd always wished you, you could be a comic writer or, or a novelist. And I was going to ask you if you felt like the essay form was, was best suited for the, the things that you wanted to pursue qu question-wise. which Well, which... there was no conscious choice, oh, I think I'll be an essayist, that, that form chose me exactly the way your voice just appears. You discover your voice. You don't create your voice. Uh, that, the medium chose me. Um, I, of course, I tried to write short stories. And of course, I've written poetry that nobody has seen. I've published one. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> published one entire poem. Uh, but those are not my medium. Right. Um, I've tried my hand at uh, a truer kind of journalism, a fair and balanced journalism, and that's not for me either. I don't want to be that fair. I really, I want that subjective um, questioning persona. So the voice arises and the voice chooses a form. Hmm. And so I found myself to be an essayist, and I just at some point just bowed to that. Um, at book length, we call it other things. We call it creative nonfiction or prose or whatever you want to call it, but uh, it's the same it's the same concept. It's that it's that questioning, um, hesitant, wondering voice. Let's explore this. So it that just naturally became my form. Uh, and when I go back and look at the work, to me, each piece is that's the moment in time. That was the problem that I was having. To me, writing has often been about solving problems. This problem is arising internally for me or as a question, or it's a it's something that I haven't solved in my life or I'm not sure what I think about it or, you know, in a million different ways, it's a problem and you're seeking a solution. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, something uncanny is happening here because as we have this discussion, I feel like you must have ESP. Was because, that your next question? Well, let me, I'm going to read it just because it's uncanny. And, the, and then I have a, a more complex question for you. But at the beginning of the program, I quoted Charles D'Ambrosio, who's also a great essayist. Um, and he says in his own... Um, when he's talking about the essay, he says that the problem with an essay can eventually become its subject. And that reminded me of a quote that you that you yourself said that I wanted you to talk a little bit about, which is the essay is the problem and I seek the solution. 
which um, we've already yeah. answered. Yeah. yeah. Well, there, but there's layers there. The essay is about the problem, and in the process of writing the essay, I'm exploring solutions to that problem. But the essay is also a problem. Literally, how do I say this? How do I, how do I layer this, structure this, find the words to say things that I, I don't have the words for? And so the essay is, is both exploring and trying out ideas about the world and about the self, and it's also exploring and trying out ways to say that, ways to say what you've discovered. So language is, is infinitely flexible in that sense. Well, let's move on to a specific essay. Uh, you mentioned that ambiguity and complexity are, are something that one of the th through lines and threads that hold the collection together. And at one point in your life, you were a nurse in an abortion clinic, and you wrote an essay called Fetus Dreams for Harper's Magazine, which I think had a different title with them. Yes. Well, and I was sitting here guessing what essay you were going to mention, and I thought, I know he's going to be talking about the abortion essay. Well, well what, I, <laughs> what I found really particularly interesting about this essay as uh, reading it as a writer myself, because you really see how politics, particularly politics that are really polarized, um, how they affect language. So when we look at what to call that which is aborted, whether we call it tissue or a zygote or a fetus or a baby or a person, it seems those questions seem less about a battle for how accurately we can describe what we see with our eyes, but more of how ac effectively we can advance one's agenda against the other side. Um, but you approach this essay as someone who simply wants to describe or maybe not simply, but wants to describe the experience of being an abortion nurse. Um, something that seems simple on the face, perhaps, but because when you describe these, these um, things that you see, um, but with outside of the political framework, people reading it inf try to infer w what you believe rather than just what you're seeing with your eyes. So, for instance, if you report that aborted tissue has fingers or toes in the trash can, people might infer that that means you're pro-life, uh, when in fact the opposite is, 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 except, is true. Except that I reject that phrase, pro-life. I think that's a really inaccurate yes, I, way to describe the position. But, can we, but let's, can we push into this idea around observation and description, right. walking into a field that is fraught with um, a language that isn't looking for accuracy anymore? Well, and as I, I, as I say in the postscript, for ever since that essay was published, I've heard from people who presume that I am anti-choice, um, that I'm opposed to abortion being legal. And they're flat wrong. I'm very strongly pro-choice and pro-reproductive rights. But when it was published, I heard some very, I got very hateful response from the pro-choice groups who, at the, and you have to hark your mind back a little bit, although some of it's still very much with us, but at the time that we were really still creating a strong ground for abortion being acceptable in this country, the idea that we would speak blankly and, and bluntly about what, was, what an abortion was was considered a, a bad thing to do because it was literally giving ground to the other side, that um, it would just confuse people. And so I was accused by 
pro-choice feminists of undermining the pro-choice position by telling the truth. And to me, that's one of the most interesting aspects of approaching a subject like this is how can you choose to give away half of your truth? You can't. We can't really talk about it if we don't look clearly at it. So to a large extent, the essayist, by bringing her own uncertainty and her own question to the material, is inviting a deeper examination by everybody. And by it's inviting an intimacy with the question. And the, the goal is clarity. The goal is discovery and clarity wherever that takes us. And it may take us places we don't expect to go or don't want to go. I don't think you can be a really strong pro-choice voter if you don't know what you're really voting for. Hmm. Um, and to me, it's a lot like someone who says, well, I, I eat meat, but I really don't want to know anything about slaughterhouses or meat packing or where meat comes from. You're not kidding anybody. You know, clarity, clarity is a leading value for me. That, and by that, I mean seeing the world as it is. Mm -hmm. So working in an abortion clinic made me a stronger pro-choice voter. Um, and con I've continued to support pro-choice causes all along. I wouldn't hesitate to do that kind of work again. But I do it with very clear eyes. Well, you have two quotes that I would love to hear more about from that essay. The first, abortion is the narrowest edge between kindness and cruelty. And the second, abortion requires a willingness to live with conflict, fearlessness, and grief. Right. That, that, I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> you well, know, it, it, ending a pregnancy is never easy unless you're not paying attention. And when we when we get ourselves tied in knots about women who have more than one abortion or who have multiple abortions or who have multiple pregnancies that are unplanned, those women are least equipped to become parents. So the, the women whose contraception or contraceptive efforts fail the most frequently are the ones who are least equipped to be mothers and to say that, well, we're going to punish that person, that person who's not being responsible by requiring them to suddenly become responsible in a way that they can't be, it just doesn't make any sense. Socially, it's just stupid. So there's that, that is part of this willingness to live with grief and ambivalence and, and confusion. It's, it's social grief. And yes, it's killing. So I don't intend this hour to turn into a no, debate I, on, but actually, on abortion rights. Well, I don't want to either, but I think it's really interesting because when you call abortion a merciful violence, I think we can find that sort of um, complexity in a lot of your essays. So when you call abortion a merciful violence, if we were to step aside from politics and just look at biology, there's something that's alive that is no longer alive after an abortion. Mm -hmm. There are various imperfect solutions. And like when I think about the New Yorker article um, talking... Which I have to say, I have not read. Oh, you haven't? No, I don't read reviews. Wow. Yeah. Well, you should read that one. 
when they when they call you a pioneer of writing about caretaking. See, uh, you're... I, I have some issues with that. That's why I haven't read it. <laughs> so All right, well, we, we go back to that. Okay. Um, so you've not only worked as, a, as an abortion clinic nurse, you've also worked as a nurse in a cancer ward. And again, we see this, um, this issue of complexity and ambiguity, um, particularly with dealing with cancer patients, where the cure is, a, is itself a poison. Um, and the poison sometimes doesn't lead to a cure. And so it feels like you enter the experience of describing the cancer, being a cancer ward nurse with a similar ethos and with a similar sense of this being merciful violence, essentially. Is that seem, yeah. Does uh, it seem right? Yeah, I think you can, you can work in oncology, and I currently work in palliative care and end-of-life care part-time. You, you can only do those jobs if you're willing to see what's in front of you. You have to be willing to see clearly. You know, off and on through my life, I've had people say, oh, I could never do that. I couldn't see that. I can't, I can't tolerate that kind of suffering. And, well, on the one hand, you're not really paying attention because it's not all about suffering. There's a lot of laughter and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of intimacy in these, you know, crises of life. And we are all going to have them, so pay attention. But it's, why would you want to lead your life looking down, not looking up. You know, I've always been very curious about uh, those moments in our life when we drop all of our, our expectations about the way things are going to be and we just are there. We, we, you just meet it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something very, it's stark. It can be bleak in the sense that it's not decorated. But it's also very, it's a very tender, warm, and intimate place to be. I found um, working with abortion that just the, that every act you do was important. And that's carried through to, it's the same with children. Everything you do has an impact. So, and, and I've come to see that that's true pretty much all the time. Every, every interaction we have with other people has an impact. So if you're paying attention... The, the world is actually a very intimate, tender place. And, yeah, it can be hard to go through life with a really tender heart, so we all take our breaks. Hmm. But I, I can't imagine wanting to step out of an entire aspect of life and say, I don't want to know about that. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to essayist Sally Tisdale about her collected essays, Violation from Hawthorne Books. You have this this other great quote that I, I want to share on the air, that grieving is a lifelong gift. Grieving is our one chance to cherish another without reservation. That's something I really love. And when I read through these, this 30-year this uh, collection of essays, it feels like you're drawn to this liminal space between life and death quite often. Not always, but there's not only contradiction and ambiguity and complexity, but also this specific space. Um, where loss can be a gift and violence can be a mercy. And I was, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that attraction for you well, of, uh, of going to that place. I have to say thank you for choosing that quote because it's, it's one of my favorite lines in an essay that's one of my favorites but was, has rarely been noted or read. So it's just a, an essay that's very close to my heart. 
about my dear friend Paul Bessler. But also, I wrote that when I was 17. Wow. And it was only, you know, some years later that I turned it, that I cleaned it up and turned it into an essay. So it takes me back to this when I was first really discovering what what that tender place was. And I've really come to see over, over a long time uh, that it is very hard to truly love other people without conditions and without reservation. And there is something that happens when a person is gone. There's no more, there's no risk anymore. There's nothing more to lose. And the heart opens up in a way that it, it is very difficult for the heart to open when there's still something to lose, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so the, the physical death of a person can be a time of incredibly deep love and, and willingness. Yeah. It reminds me of something I heard a, a rabbi say in a sermon once, um, that grief is the highest form of praise. Yeah. And in my tradition, the Buddhist tradition, we would say with great wisdom comes great grief. Hmm. Because when, and wisdom in Buddhism being a matter of being clear and seeing the world as it is, as it truly is. And when you see the world as it truly is, you cannot not see suffering and how people create suffering and how delusion and ignorance it continue this wheel of suffering. And you, when, you, when you see that, you see loss coming. And when you understand that the world is constantly changing, that we are constantly changing, then you know that loss is part of it. And you can't love anything without loss. Hmm. You know, if you don't accept the fact of loss, you'll never really love. So I've tried to have that be a leading value. And I have to say that doesn't mean that I'm good at it. It doesn't mean that I'm free of neuroses or that I find intimacy easy or that I don't prefer to keep my distance sometimes. I just see that in myself. Yeah. And and sometimes we would choose not to see that, but it's useful for me to see that. The contemplation of death seems like a natural topic for an abortion clinic nurse and for a cancer ward nurse, but is also a mindfulness practice in, in Buddhism. Um, at least I've read about the sending of monks to sit with corpses uh, and to meditate among corpses, uh, which in a way I feels like, at least imagining that, that process feels like something that informs a certain orientation you have in your essays. Is that, is that a well, process you're familiar with? It was the historic... The historical Buddha started it. It was it was part of the practice at the beginning. It's called charnel ground meditation. Um, in ancient Buddha, bodies were taken to the charnel ground and they decomposed in plain sight. And or uh, so, the Buddha would say if you're if you're really attached to uh, appearances, for instance, the strength and youth and beauty, go to the charnel ground and get over it. Uh, and that. That is the charnel ground is right here in front of us all the time. It's I see it in the mirror every day. Uh, I it's a, aging is shocking. Life is full of those kinds of of shocks and daily losses and reminders that everything changes. So uh, I, I have a pretty broad sense of what charnel ground meditation is, mm-hmm. and it's not just about people being sick or 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 dying at all. I raised three children. And 
I was doing that same kind of meditation on a daily basis with my children. They were never the same from day to day. And I remember when my daughter was about six, feeling so sad that the four-year-old was gone, that I would never see that four-year-old again, who I had adored. My son was never going to be eight again, and I loved him when he was eight. Didn't love him so much when he was 12. <laughs> so it's like we, we have continual, um, we give way, we get, and we get, give way all the time in life. And so that's really, I take that as a very broad piece of advice. Notice change. Notice that everything is changing. Hmm. Notice that we're all moving. Yeah. Not, not looking away, but observing our own desire to look away. Um, finding knowledge in that observation seems like part of the impulse behind perhaps my favorite essay in the collection, uh, The Sutra of Maggots and Blowflies, um, uh, uh, an essay that I had trouble not looking away at certain points in reading it. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> so I would love it if you could tell us about this essay and how it came into being. Okay, and, and I'm, I'm glad you had trouble looking at it because it's really just plain facts. It's just biology that we're looking at, and we do have trouble looking at that. So there's a very famous essay called Sutra of Mountains and Waters by a medieval Japanese Zen master named Dogen. And I, it, it talks about the life in what seems to not be alive, mountains and waters and change. And it's used in a lot of imagistic ways and metaphoric ways. And it's a very dense and mystical essay. I have a cabin up on the mountain, um, up near Mount Hood, and spend a lot of time walking around in the woods up there. And I was just walking around one day and thought that I would really like to do some sort of homage or, or um, pastiche of this sutra of mountains and waters, because here I am in the mountains and waters, and, and they do seem very, like you said, liminal, luminous. Uh, but I became really interested as I, was, as I was up there one summer in the flies, and everywhere you turn, there's these tiny little bits of life that is moving very quickly and seems to be very um, unimportant, but is really crucial. And so as I studied flies, I decided that what I really wanted to do was address the same question through the, through the issue of maggots, the baby flies, which, are, which what is what eats our body. And so I just started, I just plunged into fly science, yeah. which is a very large field I discovered, yeah. <laughs> a very large field in a very, a very growing and controversial field. Um, and more knowledge than I could possibly gain in a lifetime about flies. And it's fascinating, like you pointed out about me wanting to turn away. Like, why is it that if we describe in detail the life cycle of a maggot or, or the process of the decomposition of the human body, the blooming of a certain type of life that, that we can't find any sort of easy connection with that comes out of our death? Well, um, and I, and I talk in there about this, you know, the, the, our compassion toward other things begins with those things that are most like us. When we feel mercy and compassion, it's always toward those things which seem most me. So right. it's somebody who looks like me or is related to me. and um, Or even seen what we think of as humanity in an animal's 
eyes that we don't see in a fish. Right, and sometimes we can be closer to an animal than we can to another human because they seem like us in some ways. So there's that these circles of likeness. And as we move out, and we move out, and we start to encounter things like jellyfish and slugs and maggots, how do we how do we have any sense of relationship to these things? Mm-hmm. But if you study this level of science, any any science of the insect world, you can't avoid the fact that this is you, that this is going on in and on your body all the time. This is inescapable. This is part of your world. Uh, so, and I've always been drawn to things actually that are pretty different, pretty other. So as a child, I had snakes and I had a baby crocodile for a while, didn't survive, but um, and I have no idea where I got a baby huh. crocodile, but I remember having it. And geckos, and, you know, I was very interested in these oddball creatures. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that part of it was because nobody wanted me to have these things. And I was always a little bit of a, a little pushback there. Yeah. But we can't we can't forget that our eyebrows are filled with dust mites, you know, People, I mention that to people. I tend to say things like this at the dinner table. And people are like, oh, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And it's like, why don't you want to know that? <laughs> Isn't that fascinating that yeah. there are insects crawling in your eyebrow and that's the way your life, that's the way your body is supposed to be? Right. Well, I'd, I'd love to actually have you read a, a tiny section of this, this sutra if, you, if okay. you don't mind. Let me find it in here. So one fly seeks light and heat. Another avoids both. One is a vegetarian, another a terror. They flit like tiny shadows in the night skies, crawl across the window pane and out of the drain and into the garbage and into our eyes. Sometimes flies migrate out to sea, far from anything human, flitting across the white-capped waves of the ever-moving sea for miles, for days. The fly is grotesque and frail and lovely and vigorous, quivering, shivering, lapping, flitting, jerking, sucking, panting. Theirs is an exotic genius, a design of brilliant simplicity and bewildering complexity at once. I study flies. I am stunned by them. I love them with a fleeting love, with the triad, love, logic, sensitivity, Did you notice how calmly I noted that there is a fly that lives inside spiders, another that is parasitic on grasshoppers? This is a humming, buzzing world. We live in the midst of the ceaseless murmur of lives, a world of strange things whispering the poems of old Buddhas. The world's constant wrestling is like the rubbing of velvet between distracted fingers. It can drive one mad. Beside the cherry tree, under that bright sky, lives the sheep bot fly. It enters a sheep's nostril, where it gives birth to live young. The maggots crawl up the nasal passages into the sinuses, where they feed until they are grown, a process that lasts nearly a year. The sheep's nose runs with pus. It shakes its head at this odd itch shakes and rubs its nose into the ground, grits its teeth, jumps about, growing ever weaker. The condition is sometimes called the blind staggers. One day the sheep gives a great sneeze and outshoot mature sheep bot flies. They are ready to mate and make more babies. 
It is right here with flies that I face a direct and potent challenge. What do I really believe? What do I believe about beauty and the ultimate goodness of this world? We've been listening to Sally Tisdale read from Violation, her collected essays from Hawthorne Books. So you you suggest that um, doing a deep observation and and, um, uh, exploration of the world of flies and maggots challenges your belief around goodness and beauty in the world. And I'm curious, does it change your belief around it or does it transform it into something else? No, because I think I, we, we have different ways of, of using that word goodness. And the shallow way is that beauty and goodness is pleasant. Beauty and goodness is easy. But there's a much, much deeper kind of beauty and goodness. I think this continual change that I see in the mirror and in the world is beautiful. I see nothing ugly about the fact that we have a normal lifespan and that our bodies will change and decay. That that makes me part of the world. And I think that's beautiful. And the goodness is that in, in the face of it, and this is really the conclusion I come to in this essay that in the face of it, everybody's the same. And it's an entomologist who says that the fly makes all beings equal, kings and peasants alike, that we, there is real goodness in that equality of life. To a fly, everything is the same. Mm. It doesn't distinguish. And we can't escape I, th- I think if you truly believe that there is a rightness in the natural world, then you have to accept that that what happens is the way way it belongs. Well, one of the one of the delights of the collection is the um, by chance juxta- juxtaposition between this essay, the Sutra of Maggots and Blowflies, and your essay Twitchy, and I feel like. Twitchy is a really important essay in the book for me because otherwise I feel like we get the sense of you as um, sort of uniformly brave and and clear-eyed and wanting to see everything that um, you can, no matter how disturbing. And you say yourself that even with your Buddhist practice, all the things that you believe and you teach are not always good at them. But this essay is about you and your relationship to dentistry. Um, (laughs) about your your fear and anxiety about dentistry. And it seems like it's this one arena where you don't want to bear witness, uh, where you instead want to be armed with your iPod. I would absolutely like to avoid this part of life completely. Yeah, so you want to be armed with your iPod. You want to always use the nitrous oxide gas. Um, And it complicates you in this really interesting way in the collection to have these two together. Here you're doing these things that probably a lot of readers couldn't imagine doing. And then here's another area where a lot of other readers could imagine doing without the iPod and the gas, yeah. and, and, and you're not. Well, I, I'm, I'm sorry that it seems like I'm uniformly brave because I'm actually uniformly scared of a lot of things. But I'm, I am willing to explore that being afraid. I also hate to fly in airplanes. I, I have had, I've had a really deep fear of flying that I've worked my way through, and I do get on airplanes, but I'm certainly, you know, a big baby coward when it comes to turbulence, for yeah. instance. Um, you can be ready to die or willing to die when it's your time and still be really, really unwilling <laughs> at, organically in that moment. And 
there is a I, I experience physical pain as a really scary thing. Hmm. I, I had a severe injury to my finger last summer. I cut it really badly, and I was home alone, and um, my finger was spurting blood, and I, you know, I was I was all by. I ended up driving myself alone to the emergency room, and. Um, I felt very traumatized by this experience. I, I watched as they stitched. I'm, you know, I'm not afraid to look at it, but I felt like five years old through the entire experience, mm. and um, and not he- not hesitating a moment to tell them that I was feeling scared and small, yeah. and I wanted my mommy. And you know, why would we why would we not admit that? So I don't think of myself as physically brave at all. Um, and and not particularly a risk taker physically at all, but, but perhaps but a perhaps risk. emotionally and morally brave I am and aware you're aiming your perception. And if generally. you're intellectually curious, then you that there's there is bravery in being curious because you don't know where it's going to take you, and you have to be willing to keep going and not turn away. But physically brave, not at all. Hmm. Well, the last essay in the collection, your, the unpublished essay, So Long As I Am With Others, seems to push into questions about the nature of self. In the postscript to the essay, you say, over the years, the themes of family, time, memory, body, expression, they've begun to meld into a theme I think of as presentation, how we are in the world, how we present ourselves to others, how we are perceived, and how we try to control perception, how much of appearance is self? How much of self is mere appearance? These are the questions that I carry into my writing now. Um, And I was hoping you'd unpack this a little for us, because I know both in the fields of philosophy and uh, neuroscience, as well as in in some strains of Buddhism, um, there's questions about whether a self exists except as a social construct, and there's debate, but um, there's certainly people in all of those fields who, who believe it doesn't. So can you talk a little bit about what you're doing in this essay and, and perhaps how that relates to your beliefs around perception and appearance and, and selfhood. Well, and that, that essay, which I, I, I acknowledge is pretty dense um, and has been soundly rejected by many editors, uh, is it began with the thinking about what I see in the mirror and that I do sometimes flinch. At, I'm turning 60 next week and I feel about 30 and this, and I've often worked with um, people who are quite old and uh, aware that there is often a self that is not seen, that there is often a disconnect between what the world perceives and what the person experiences. Uh, so I began really thinking about reflection and what does reflection mean? How am I reflected by others? Um, and I was saying before we started that I sometimes find it difficult to do a reading, um, you know, for like a book reading, because people come with a perception of you in the first place. This is always the case. They come thinking they know who you are. And and this is worse after they read your book. Then people have a very strong sense that they think they know who you are. But the writer is not the author, and the author is not the narrator, of the stories, and these are these are three very different things. And then there's the person behind all of that. So um, for a lot of reasons, I've just been very curious about 
what am I am I ever seen? Am I ever truly seen? Do I want to be seen? Do I ever see anybody else really, truly? Hmm. Or am I seeing what they want me to see? Am I trying to peek behind a curtain that they're holding closed? Um, and the essay ends with, you know, with being with some of these women I know in Uganda where they, they have no mirrors at all. They're not paying any attention to what they look like. Their mirror is each other. And they completely depend on, well, how do I look? Oh, you look good. Oh, you should do this. And, they, and there's this feedback loop all the time about, because they're very social people. And so their feedback loop is their relationship. I'm much more of an introvert than that and um, much disinclined to engage in that kind of thing and have, I don't want somebody to tell me if they think I look good because I don't want to know the answer. You know, there's this, there is a, there is a flinch there for me. So as always, I'm trying to move into what I see as the question, the problem, what is, you know, and it, it can be about getting older, but it's just also about being in relationship. Most of our relationships are partly about agreements about what we don't talk about and what we don't say and what we don't see and what we don't show. Hmm. Um, there's always an element to that in every relationship as much as there is about what we do share. So there are unanswerable questions in many ways. You know, philosophers have gotten themselves bent into all kinds of shape about the nature of identity and self. And I'm interested in some of those, you know, um, fundamental philosophical questions, but I want to see them reflected in ordinary daily life, you know. Like, for instance, here I, I go again, but surgery is a fascinating experience. I just talked about watching my finger be stitched up. Is that me? Is that my, is that my identity? What is what we, we call surgery an insult? That's a technical way of saying it's an insult to the body. And I think we all experience that. Dentistry is a, a significant insult to me. But so is just ordinary life. So I'm really interested in how we experience self in all these ways, like gender. I'm interested in oddly shaped bodies, the bodies we tend to not want to look at. What's it like to be inside that body? I'm interested in um, decoration, clothing, how we present ourselves to the world, how we pretend we're not presenting ourselves to the world. Hmm. So there's all kinds of issues in there about gender and um, expression and language. And I'm just getting started. But I'll tell you what I, I am working on right now. And I have been very happily working on a very long essay about the TV show Survivor. Really? Which I'm fascinated by and have been along. Is that still going on? Oh, you, you say that same thing. Everybody says, is Survivor still on? Survivor just had its 500th episode. Oh, my God. And its ratings have not changed. Wow. It's one of the most consistently watched shows huh. in the history of television. So, yeah, 17 years, 500 shows. And I've watched pretty much all of it. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated by it as a social, as a social game, as a way that people are thrown into a very um, heightened environment where it's entirely about how you present yourself, how you let people see you and don't, and how you prevent them from seeing you. Um, there's a great deal of deception involved, and some of it's conscious, but there's also a lot of unconscious deception and alliances and so on. So, I'm, and you know, I say that I always wanted to be a funnier writer than I am. I, the older I get, 
the funnier I feel and the more fun I'm having. And I'm, and I'm hoping that this will actually be a pretty funny story. Yeah, that sounds really intriguing. <laughs> yeah. Well, to go back to like something that isn't inherently funny, but around this idea of perception, you also say in that essay at one point that you'd love to be able to remove the part of you that stands apart from the world, from yourself, to kill the witness and just be. And I was curious about that in relationship to Buddhism, because I often think of, in, in the little that I know, that meditation practices, you're, you're cultivating the witness, um, you're cultivating the observer, and that paradoxically, through the cultivating of the witness, one becomes more present and not apart from the world. So uh, can you talk a little bit about this? Um, because as a, both as a writer and as a nurse and as a Buddhist, those are all those all require a certain amount of, of witnessing. Okay. Well, so first I have to be the meditation teacher and okay, say thanks. that you you allow the witness to come forth rather than cultivate it. You um, first get a little bit of space around what seems at first to just be you. And I am angry becomes I am feeling anger becomes I am feeling sensations that I call anger. That's the development of this witness. But you have to let that go. You don't, that's not the end goal to have a witness or an observer. Mm. Eventually that does set you it, 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 it holds you back. You let that go and you simply experience this moment as it is. And that's the intimacy. Um, thus endeth our lesson on meditation. Uh, but in Buddhism, the cultivation of compassion is a conscious practice. And uh, one of the avatars, the bodhisattvas that we use, um, that one of the names for her is she who hears the cries of the world um, or sees the sights of the world. In other words, the total witness, not the fixer, not the rescuer, not the one who cures things, but the one who hears and sees things as they are. And that that's, a, that's our avatar, not of wisdom, but of compassion. That real compassion requires us to see it, um, to, to really truly see things. So that, there's that witness. And, you know, sometimes as, not just as a nurse, but as a mother, as a friend, as a person in the world, that's all I can do. There's nothing more I can do except say, I see that. I hear that. That's hard. That's easy. Lucky you. I'm sorry. Whatever the response is, you can't take it away. You can't fix it. What you can do is see it. I'm, I'm fascinated by how people respond to beggars um, and to poverty, to visible poverty, because it ties people into knots as much as anything can. People get, are, tend to be very constricted and confused about how they want to respond to a beggar. I was just in India for a month, and India has a very visible begging culture, uh, and to be a foreigner walking through that, the friends I was with, for the most part, found it, it really troubling and troublesome and, and a, a difficult question. How do I respond to this? I don't know what to do. There's too much. I can't, I can't give to everybody, so I'm not going to give to anybody. And, and every day it would be a new sort of attempt to find a solution to this problem. And I'm, I'm trying to find a solution there, too, and I have my ways, but... What I can do is actually look. 
I can walk down the street and make eye contact with people. And I can allow myself to know that this exists. I think that witness is important. That if we get ourselves really tied into knots about something like poverty or abortion or refugees or whatever, we our, our reaction is often to say, well, I just, I'm just not going to think about that. I'm just, that's not going to be my issue, so I'm going to turn away. But you can always see. Hmm. And I think that's, that's important to do, hmm. you know. But then we become witnesses to ourselves. There is something really useful about having a neutral view of yourself. And I think years of meditation do tend to give you a little, a little space in which you can see yourself somewhat dispassionately and not be completely bundled up with identifying everything as yourself. So, so one of the one of the mysteries of self, I think, is how we are all interdependent—not just human to human, but human to non-human. But we often experience life so individuated and singular, and sometimes isolated and alone. You chose uh, the essay "Violation," and the title of the essay "Violation" is the title for the collection as a whole, and that deals, among other things, with being a writer of one's own individual story and the complications that ensue when the story inevitably involves the portrayal and sometimes the potential betrayal of those in your family or your community. Can you talk about the issues specific to your life where the questions of where to draw the line of what to say or not to say were most charged in, in this regard? Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you that the, other, the only other title we, we considered was Twitchy. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I really like... Um, that word violation as a description of what the writer is doing, um, as particularly the essayist. <clears throat> it, if you aren't willing to look at that, at the fact that you are using people as material, then you really can't do it. I, I, teach, I just started a class last night at PSU. I teach there now and then. And it becomes one of the most important themes over the course of the term for every student in the class is, is how do I use real people as material in a way that feels acceptable? And how do I, on the one hand, people tend to say everything goes. It's so everything's grist to the mill. I can do anything I want um, in, a, in a way that feels really um, violating. And on the other hand, people are like, the second they get near any of that material, they just flinch and turn away. And so their work is very toothless um, and, and mundane because they're not willing to go into those places. So the, you have to begin with this. This is my problem. And I say in violation, it, it begins with my sister being very upset about something I wrote and saying that I was never to use her name in anything I wrote again. Of course, a few by a, you know a few years go by, and she's like, "How come you never write about me?" So people do tend to get over it. But uh, and the whole essay grew out of that. You might notice I don't use her name in the story. Huh. Um, that was my sort of little dig. But I began really thinking about: Is it fair? Is it true? You know, it's these questions, is it right? Are my memories accurate? Well, probably not. Nobody's are in that sense of objective truth. But it's really hard to know what is. 
so is it fair? Is it fair to use her, to present her that way, to describe her that way? Um, probably not sometimes, because again, it's my point of view. She doesn't get to respond. She doesn't get to, to defend herself. Um, so do I have the right? You know, and I've, I've addressed this question in a lot of different ways. And I think, as with a lot of other essays, the longer I've gone from this position of writing this essay, the more settled and comfortable I am with this. I'm actually really quite at ease with this question now. There are people in my life I've chosen not to write about. There are events in my life I have consciously said, yep, I could get a great essay out of that. Not going to go there. Um, and I have not got a lot of interest in the current humble brag, let it all hang out version of memoir essay. Um, especially the, I'm a complete screwed up mess. I'm going to tell you all about what a complete screwed up mess I am. I find that uh, self, that kind of self-referential, um, it's, it's winking, there's a little mocking in it. It just... And it's unrefined, you know? So, I, I, and I think a lot of that comes out of our current electronic culture where you, can, you don't have to take time before you publish. You can just let your first vomit of it come out and be seen by everybody. And, mm. um, and so there's a lack of process that goes on in that. So am I hearing you write that perhaps your ethos around what and who to write about is uh, case by case. Yeah, there isn't a. You wouldn't be able to write the, the the ten commandments of, of how to write your no your story. No, you have to. You, you that's that's for you to decide. Um, you know, I I remember saying at one point, oh, I just I'm not going to write about my children. And then I looked and I thought I have actually written about my children quite a bit. <laughs> so I guess that I don't know where that came from, but yeah, you no know, and. Uh, it is case by case, and it's probably for me, it's day by day. And um, and for full self disclosure, you know, part of my l lack of interest in the let it all hang out, I'm a mess kind of writing is that I actually like to be seen as fairly together. So it's harder for me to really un unpack that stuff. So I'm a, I'm quite aware of that. I still think, you know, sort it out and come to some some understanding of what's happening before you post it on your blog. Yeah, that sounds like a good, <laughs> good advice. We're talking today to essayist Sally Tisdale about her latest collection, Violation, from Hawthorne Books. Another area of the collection that is complex and ambiguous is the question of gender, which you mentioned earlier. And the collection includes an essay on weight loss, um, one on not being allowed to be a fireman by your fireman father because you're a, a girl, um, about eating meats to be more like a son to him, about wanting to do manly things, and yet for years also wanting to either be a fireman or a nun. Um, and learning about all of this as we travel through the collection, it was particularly interesting to encounter your essay, The Hounds of Spring, about your time teaching uh, at the Writers in the Schools program here in Portland. And in it you say... I was startled to discover that trying to cajole noisy classes into writing a little bit turned into a heartbreaking study and how we turn girls into victims. And I would love to hear more about what you're referring to there. So this was um, 
a class. This was at Grant High School where I taught for several years, uh, a writers in the schools class. And uh, I had a part of a term and the project was, it was up to me to design the project. And I thought I was pretty inspired when I thought that we would, ha they would write their autobiography from, from as though they were old. They would imagine their life to come and they would write about it as though it had happened. So we spent a lot of time just kind of negotiating what that meant. And I re really remember one girl saying, is, it, is this legal? <laughs> is it legal to, to make it up, to make up your life? And so I, some of it was about getting them out of their comfort zone about what they've been told they can write about and being told, yeah, you can just imagine the life that you're going to have and then tell me that story. And it was shocking. I mean, I was really shocked at how it broke down along gender lines. Um, even the worst writers among the boys were writing far-flung, crazy-ass adventures. They were criminals. They were astronauts. They were president. Um, they were race car drivers. Um, they got married a bunch of times. And they had exciting affairs, and they got rich. And, you know, even if these were terribly written stories um, with really no command of the English language, there, the subject was exciting. And the girls, one after the other after the other, wrote stories about leaving college to get married, giving up their career to raise their kids, being judged by their appearance. Um, one girl actually wrote about running for president, and the whole story was about what kind of clothes she should wear for campaign appearances and what her hair should look like. And um, the, the girls' stories were so small and had a, a, such an element of disappointment and sadness. I'm sure it was not conscious. I, I mean, I'm sure they didn't say, I'm really disappointed at what my future life's going to be. I'm going to write that. It was just built in. It was really built in. And I spent a lot of the time working with the girls, trying to say, but, you know, you could be an astronaut. You could be a race car driver. And they, they were like, no, I can't. No, I can't. The, the smallness of their imagination was very distressing to me. I'd be curious to do that again and see if anything's changed. I have a feeling that our gender expectations of girls and boys, especially about around appearance, are even worse. Um, girls, the, the expectations of how thin and, and how sexualized at a young age girls are supposed to be is worse, not better. Uh, I don't know what's changed for boys so much. So, yeah. And those the, those hounds of spring, you know, when I started out, I thought, it's April, it's May. How am I going to get these kids to settle down when the hounds of spring are upon us, right? Because it's hard for me to settle down in April and May. But it, the hounds of spring became really more those hounds of the howling culture that are heading for these young people. Hmm. Well, you, you've done some interviewing of other writers yourself, and in your interview with Wendy Lower, the issue of gender looms large. She's the author of the book, Hitler's Furies, German Women in the Nazi Killing Fields, a book that established, contrary to the view held at the time, that German women participated fully in the Nazi colonization of Eastern Europe and the regime's horrific crimes. Uh, you ask a question with regards to feminism and historical research, which intrigued me in that interview. 
you talk about how feminism has changed historical research by highlighting women who've been ignored or erased from the historical record, highlighting them often for their courage or, or creativity, which is something you've done with your own book, Women of the Way, um, where you draw upon historical, cultural, and Buddhist records to bring to life narratives of ancestral Buddhist women. But you and your question, uh, in this question, you point out that Wendy Lower is doing something really different. She's showing women, when given power and opportunity, um, also participating in brutality and history's evils. And I wondered if what attracted you to interviewing Wendy is that she was going to counter that impulse uh, to find the courageous and heroic that she instead goes and uncovers um, brutality among these female kindergarten teachers she describes. So here, here's the, the question that you ask. In, in covering material such as this, what do you do for yourself to guard against your own reaction, coloring the material, and to maintain your own equanimity? So I kind of want to turn that question around to you, ask the question you asked Wendy to you in light of like perhaps this, I imagine you being drawn to Wendy's enterprise as a, as a one that complicates the impulse that has happened around feminism and the historical record. Well, the reason I interview, I'm just amazed that you found that. Um, she was nominated for a National Book Award, and I was asked by the Book Foundation to interview the five finalists um, just for the, for the, um, for the sake of that particular year. It was fascinating to, to delve into those five books that had been selected and then figure out what, what do I want to know more of. So I got to talk to um, five really interesting writers about five really good books. Um, I don't know that I would have picked that book up otherwise, um, just because I don't read much um, of that era of history. I'm getting more interested in it, but... Uh, yeah, I'm really, how do we avoid coloring the world to look the way we want it to look? Um, I do believe as as a feminist that, and this, this starts way back with the abortion clinic, if we don't see the whole picture, we're not, we're not really giving women agency. Um, it's not just, um, it's not just about the law. It's about really honoring women as fully complete agents of their own life. And that includes the ability to be Ivanka Trump in the White House um, doing things that I completely, I think are completely wrong and amoral. It includes the ability to, to torture and to kill. And the fact that crime is disparately divided between the genders, that's interesting. And a million, a million theories come out of that. But of course I have the ability to be just as wicked um, as anybody else. I don't think you can really see a killer without realizing that you're capable of killing. And you can't really see a woman as a whole human being if you don't give her the right to be evil, the, the possibility of the evil. The possibility of evil. Yeah. And well, we don't see history clearly if we don't see it through all these different views. So I do certainly stand by that idea that it is changing the way we read history. A lot of those records are lost um, or buried, and so we have to remember that what we know of history is always incomplete, very skewed. Well, to just briefly circle back to the New Yorker article that you haven't read but have issues with, the one that places you as a, a, a significant influence on a lot of very important essays today, I'm curious what some of your influences or inspirations are in the essay world 
Who are some of the touchdowns for you? So I have to say that, you know, last in my first class last night, I had my students read an essay by Michael Erard, who, is a, who writes a lot about language, on the, what's called priming, language priming, which is a psycholinguistic concept that your, your writing voice will be imitative of what you've been exposed to most recently. And, and there, if you write two different kinds or three different kinds of writing, like you do an academic paper and then you're supposed to write a short story, there, there has to be some way to break that chain of language priming and make space around the new voice. Um, and it's a very complicated concept that I didn't do justice to. But uh, one way that you work with this natural priming is to avoid reading anything like what you're trying to write that's written by someone else. So when I'm actively writing, I am not reading essayists. I am not reading creative nonfiction. I am not, um, unless I feel completely dead in the water, and then I will pick up a couple of different people. Uh, Howard Norman, you've probably never heard of him. No, I know about oh, Howard, you, Norman. Howard Norman. I just heard I him think, on NPR like oh, yesterday great. or the I day before. I think Howard Norman is one of our unrewarded un, uh, treasures. I think he's one of our, our best living essayists. I really like him. I just finished teaching a reading class in Joy Williams' work, um, who I find really delightful in part because of her willingness to look at anything. Mm -hmm. She's very clear-eyed in that um, way, I think. And she's not truly an essayist because for the most part she's writing sermons. She's There's a lack of certain, I mean, a lack of uncertainty in her work. She's very certain about things, but I find it inspiring. Um, uh, Bernard Cooper is a really, he's a good friend of mine, so full disclosure, I think he is a terrific essayist really good friend. David Shields is also a friend of mine, and I don't like most of what he writes, and, and we <laughs> argue a lot about what he writes um, because he is he is rejecting conventions that I like. So um, Joanne Beard is another modern essayist that I really like. Megan Daum, mm. who I recently met, I think is really good. I also read old Older, the long gone ones. E.B. White is one of my favorite writers of all time. I think he's a, was a very fine essayist who is um, not taught enough. His when you look at him as a structural writer, he his um, his ability to digress and return is is one of the best I've seen. I've been reading Martha Gellhorn lately. Mm. Um, Martha Gellhorn wrote over a period of many decades about really important events in history, and she wrote them from a very uh, interesting personal point of view. Um, again, these, these are people who are not necessarily winning all the awards, but they're the ones that are on my, on my shelves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you what you're working on now, and you, you did mention that you're working on the Survivor piece, and I, I was wondering if... It guess just keeps getting longer and longer. <laughs> Uh, but I was wondering also, you've, Trump has come up and the, the big shifts in the political and cultural climate that have happened have come up a lot, or you've alluded to them a lot in this interview. And I was wondering <laughs> if there was, if you found like a way to uh, engage with what's happening in your writing practice at this point, or whether that's something too new and too um, too big of a shift that you don't have a, a way to do it's that at not, the moment. It's not my strong suit. I'm a slow writer. Um, I, I'm a, I, I process things slowly and I, 
I produce writing slowly for the most part. Uh, so that's not that, you know, political writing it requires you to be very fleet of feet. And I am not so fleet. I just had dinner with a friend last week and realized afterwards that it was the first time since the election, I think, that I had had a conversation with a friend and we had not talked about politics. Um, it's a huge part of my daily conversation load these days. And I feel very blessed in a way we're all getting an amazing lesson in civics um, and governance that we haven't had since sixth grade. And people are are uh, being activated in a way that they have not been. We've been really complacent about our, our institutions. So as a citizen, I'm really deeply involved and, um, and like I said, really talking about it on a daily basis. But as a writer, it's too fast. Everything is moving too fast for me to engage as an essayist. Hmm. I, I cede that ground to people who really can do that fast um, and have a better a better grounding in politics than I do. It's not where I am. But what I'm interested in is this idea. I just gave a talk, actually, about um, what it means to be politically active as a Buddhist. And uh, that does require some negotiating that I think I have some strength at about uh, finding a way to to take a stand to stand your ground and say this is what I believe without making things worse it's a very tricky thing to do um, so that's kind of where I'm engaging it is is what's the right thing to do because we have to do something and just withdrawing is not I mean that was my first response was pulling the covers over my head right but it doesn't last for long for me I have to be out there but how do we do that without feeding the fire? It's tricky. Hmm. I believe that a democracy doesn't exist without debate, so it's, it's okay to say this is what I believe. It's okay to say I don't agree with you. That's not necessarily feeding the fire. Right. Well, I, it was a real pleasure having you on the show today, Sally. Thank you. Thank uh, you for having me. We're talking today to Sally Tisdale, the author of Violation from Hawthorne Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.